What if in 2024, you got a little bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a full year. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses are helping me learn real-life conversation skills in Spanish. It's getting so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, or speak to merchants. Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babbel is better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com SPP. That's right. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hey everybody, welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. I'm Chris Stemp. And I'm John Rojas. This one was uplifting. This one is Super uplifting. And I just, man, it makes you feel good about the world. We are interviewing a social entrepreneur that started a company that is making clear, definitive progress in education and really the American economy, one person at a time. It's fantastic. We're interviewing Gerald Shortavian. And as I mentioned, he's a social entrepreneur. He founded Year Up, which is an intensive one-year education and training program that serves low-income young adults, ages 18 to 24. After talking to Gerald, it really did make me realize how important organizations like Year Up and one similar are to not only our kids in America, but our economy. I mean, it really... The success of America really is dependent on these kids coming up and ensuring that we give them all a fair shake, all that kind of stuff. It's it's super important. So this was a great conversation, really opened my eyes. Yeah, and it it's a I don't even think it's a minority anymore. I mean, I can't say it's a majority, but it's it's a lot of people that don't necessarily have the opportunities that they need, but when given the chance, thrive. Just completely blow away expectations, their own, their communities, their families, and become very productive members of society and help move it all forward. And, you know, Gerald, he used to work on Wall Street, super bright guy. You can tell by the way he answers every question. It's not just formulaic, it's passion, it's fantastic. So we're going to turn it over here to Gerald in a minute. Make sure you check us out at smartpeoplepodcast.com where we do a little write-up with quotes and points on each episode. 
And also sign up for our newsletter. We're sending stuff out that you can't find elsewhere, things we learn, upcoming guests. And if you enjoy this episode or any episode before this, please head over to iTunes or Stitcher and leave us a review. It really does help out the show, helps us grow, and helps us continue to bring more and more awesome guests. So we're going to turn it over to Gerald now, and you can learn about Europe, a little bit about his background, and what's happening with our youth. Gerald, thanks so much again for being on the show. You know, I was first introduced to your organization. I watched the video on 60 Minutes, which we'll link to on Smart People Podcast, and I was blown away. I mean, I I don't think there's that many organizations out there that have a great mission, have a great foundation. And one of the things that struck me is it's not just philanthropic. It's enlightened because you have to provide value for something to be sustainable. Can you talk about what you do at Year Up and how you came to this kind of conclusion? Sure. Um, So the mission of Year Up is really to work with low-income 18 to 24-year-olds and enable them in one year to move from poverty to a professional career. We do that with a one-year program where six months young adults are coming to one of our 12 locations around the country, learning a set of professional and technical skills while they're also earning college credit. And then after that first six months of really getting ready, they're going into six-month professional internships with one of about 300 companies uh, across the country. And for those companies, they're really becoming a pipeline of talent. And so when we talk to our corporate partners, our first question always is, do you need a pipeline of talent? And if so, uh, we'd love to talk to you about the talent we can bring to bear for your organization. So that the organization is focused on the demand of those organizations. It's focused on our primary stakeholder, our student. And we've been fortunate uh, now over the past 14 years to go from serving 22 students in our first class to this year we'll serve 2,100 students and are grateful and and fortunate that more than 85% of those graduates are now able to earn uh, more than $15 an hour or $30,000 per year and or continue full-time in college. There's a lot of things I want to get into, but before that, one of the things that really struck me and, and we talk about on the podcast fairly often is, you know, you came from Wall Street. Um, I'd love to know about your background, how you made the transition to what you do now, um, what your experience was like on Wall Street. So I uh, did um, start my career on uh, Wall Street back in, uh, with Chemical Bank back in 87, but concomitantly with that, I also signed up to be a big brother through the Big Brothers program, which is something that's been near and dear to my heart now for you know, almost 20, 27 odd years. And so I spent my days on Wall Street and I spent my weekends in what was then one of the most heavily photographed crime scenes in New York City, uh, working in being a big brother to a 10-year-old boy from the Dominican Republic, uh, David. And what David really showed me, uh, and I spent every Saturday of my life with him for three years, is he was one of the most talented, hardworking, capable young men and young, at that point, boy I'd ever met, yet he didn't have the access and the opportunity to get into the mainstream of this country. And it struck me that we were wasting human capital in a country where we just don't have any human capital to waste uh, if we are to be globally competitive. And so it was that experience really with David, who I still today call my very best teacher in life, that helped me to understand what my uh, true calling was, where I really wanted ultimately to spend 
the bulk of my time, effort, and energy, and uh, formed the basis for the essays that I wrote to get into Harvard Business School, which I went to after finishing up uh, a few years on Wall Street. So I had the idea for Year Up, uh, wrote about it going into HBS in 1990, and, but realized when I came out of HBS, I was significantly in debt. I was getting married and knew that I had to get stable and was fortunate enough to co-found a software firm back in uh, 93, which luckily was successful. And by 1999, put me in the position financially and experientially to really put all of my effort into starting and launching Year Up. That's a really interesting background, especially the, the part coming out of Harvard, because I think that a lot of people oftentimes find themselves in the position where they have this dream, but it can't be a reality without going through some other experiences. And for you, it was starting the company and going on that journey and then gaining the resources to, to be able to start year up. What was your thought process when you came out and you said, okay, this is my true passion. I kind of know it. And I have this idea for this organization, but I need to get to a place where I can make it happen. You know, I remember, I remember not having enough money to buy a baseball glove when I lived in New York City because I needed to play baseball for the local team, for the bank that I worked for. And I can tell you on that day, I said, I am not going to go through the rest of my life not have enough money to buy a baseball glove. You know, so I was pretty consumed about being able to be stable financially. As I said, I was getting married, you know, subsequently now three children. And so I, the two things I knew I had to do was to get stable, to get out of debt, and to then start to acquire the experience that I would need to actually run an organization. And uh, I'm just very grateful I didn't start year up until I was 35 and certainly made a whole bunch of mistakes running a company between 26 and 35. <laughs> that uh, hopefully I made a few less mistakes when I got to start year up. Yeah, and I think that's such an important thing. I was talking with a friend about it last night is how things oftentimes happen when it's possible, you know, when they're able to happen. Today, entrepreneurs, they're told, it, you know, you can do it young, you can take all these risks, and sometimes you're forcing it or you're just not ready to take it on. You wouldn't have known how to handle those challenges. You had a, a really enlightened mindset at that time in order to make Europe become what it is now. Yeah, it's a, it's a good point. I think each person, perhaps what the, you know, the greatest gift we can ever give to ourselves is um, self-awareness. And so I knew, you know, I hadn't had a background in business. I hadn't ever had a lot of experience in managing people or growing organization. I certainly didn't have a network. And, and I knew I needed to acquire assets. You know, I was taught, I'll never forget, I had a mentor um, I did a semester abroad in Spain as a, a junior in college, and I had a mentor over there who we, we taught each other. Uh, I taught him English. He taught me Spanish. And I never forget the day he said to me, Gerald, you can't give till you have. And it's okay in your life to be selfish for a while. It's okay to build Gerald Inc. Um, and to get the skills and the contacts and the networks the experience. Really ask yourself as you're getting in your 20s and 30s and 40s, how the balance between taking and giving exists in your own life. And if you're lucky and fortunate, you'll be able to shift that balance sooner and more significantly than not. And that stuck with me that uh, it was okay for a while to focus on what I needed to do to get some resources and experience, but to be conscious of asking yourself, when is the right time to make that shift? You know, when, I, when we sold our company, there were a whole bunch of folks saying, now here's the next big thing you can mm. do. Here's start this, his money, his capital. So you had a huge amount of interest in encouraging you to take that next big for-profit journey. And 
you know, at that point, I decided, no, that's not what I wanted to do. I was in a position to go back to the essays I wrote to get into business school. And it was in a position to say, let's now focus your life on making that essay come true. I really like that thought of the balance of being selfish and then knowing when to give back when you can give back. Do you think that that mindset needs to be more broadly spread across the U.S. now? Do you, I mean, do you think there's enough people that have that same balance and thought process as you where they were selfish for a time to build up their net worth and then maybe haven't made that transition to giving back yet? You know, there's no, I really believe this strongly, there's no right answer and there's certainly no correct answer from a Mm -hmm. judgment point of view. And in my particular case, you know, I started volunteering in Big Brothers when I was 18 years old. That's part of of giving to someone else. And certainly Big Brothers is a huge reward you get. But you're spending time with a young boy who perhaps doesn't have a father. So I think that it's not black and white. It's not all or nothing in terms of the periods in your life when you may be spending more time accreting versus more time giving, it's a balance. I think the best thing folks can do today, and certainly younger folks, is get involved as a volunteer early on. Join a board in your 20s. You know, get involved in public service. It may not be your vocation, but start to tap into what types of vocation are you passionate about? What do you love doing? Uh, And then I think as you may be in a position to shift that balance, you've accumulated some experiences that tell you what are you passionate about? Where do you want to spend your time if you had discretion over where to spend your time? Uh, I think earlier on in one's career, it's all about gaining experience and getting closer and closer to that highly sought after point in life where you can match what you're good at with what you love most. One of the, the best parts of doing this podcast is seeing the themes that emerge after talking to hundreds of extremely smart, successful people in all walks of life. And in that one response you gave, you touched on two things that I've noticed, especially a lot recently. We spoke with a guy named Joe DeSena who started uh, Spartan Up, which is, you know, like a Tough Mudder or one of those, those race things. And then he said he started on Wall Street. And the hardest part for him was getting out. He didn't regret his time there. He made enough money to then do what he really wanted and build the life he really wanted. But people often struggle as exactly as you mentioned, when they're just getting out, there's all this temptation to to suck you back in. I'm glad you mentioned that. The thing about it's okay to uh, not give until you have, you can't just dive in from that ideal of giving. You have to understand that you have to come from a place of stability. That's right. I mean, if to serve others is a sign of health, at least in, in my life, I feel very fortunate to be able to serve others, but I'm conscious and grateful for the fact that that does represent health uh, on a lot of factors, whether that be relational or uh, physical or financial, that puts you in a position where you're able to as I say, when you ask yourself the question, for whom are you accountable in this world? To have the ability to draw the circle a little more broadly than your nuclear family is a lucky thing. It's good fortune. And so you know, I, don't, I get up every day and recognize I'm fortunate to be able to be in a position to serve others and you know, never, never take it for granted and uh, consider it a, a huge blessing in life. In researching for this podcast, I listened to you speak in a lot of interviews that you've given. And one of the things that I've heard you say over and over again is this phrase, the opportunity divide. Can you explain to our listeners 
what the opportunity divide is and what it means to you? Unfortunately, right now in America, your destiny can be determined quite significantly by things like your zip code, the bank balance of your parents, color of your skin, or the school system you attended. Those are not the right things to help determine someone's trajectory in life. Yet the reality is that social mobility in this country is lower today than it is in several other European countries, which means if you're born in the bottom 20% of folks socioeconomically, your chance of getting out of that is less likely in America than it is in several other countries in Europe. That was never the case. That's the first time in the history of this country where you can say that social mobility is lower in America than it is in places like Sweden or Germany. You think, okay, that's a reality now in America. That's an opportunity divide. The opportunities to which individuals have access to is much greater than it needs to be. And, uh, and it creates a divide. It creates a divide for 6.7 million 16 to 24-year-olds in America who don't have more than a high school degree, who aren't working. They're certainly not now in school pursuing that. That's, fifth, that's about 18% of all 16 to 24-year-olds in America. So you imagine, you're not in school, you're not in work, you don't have more than a high school degree. That's 18% of all 16 to 24-year-olds in America. Imagine trying to grow an economy, build a knowledge-based society, have a good democracy, a good citizenry, when you got 18% of your young people effectively out of the game. One could conclude that they're untalented, unsmart, not hard workers, and just don't want to do it. I know that's not true. I can guarantee you it's not true. It's about providing people with opportunity to realize their potential and allow them the opportunity to actually grow into the folks they can be rather than somehow conclude that it's a personal defect that prevents folks from being successful in this country. One thing we've talked about again recently on the podcast is this idea of grit or resiliency, and there's a, a number of different adjectives for it. But what struck me in watching the videos on, on Europe and what you do is thinking that these kids or young adults that eventually make it out of your program with, with necessary training and go into the workforce, I often wonder if they're going to be more well-adjusted to the diversity, to the issues, the problems they're going to face in the workforce than somebody like, and I mean, I'm not ashamed or afraid to say it, somebody like maybe myself who didn't have all of these struggles growing up. And then when I get hit with something, and when I did when I was young, 21, 22, it might have set me back a little more than them. Have you noticed that? Yeah, it's a great point. We, we see that the adversities our students may have faced make them stronger and not weaker. There's a you know, pretty strong school of thought around where grit develops and how persistence develops that will look at the fact that the challenges you have faced can be sources of strength, uh, sources of grit and perseverance, and the challenge or the adversity doesn't make you a damaged good it actually makes you stronger. And we see that consistently in our young adults. And I can give you many stories about how our young adults have demonstrated and shown that grit to great effect and beating college grad who happens to be sitting next to them who may not have grown up with the, the same level of grit and understanding of how critical it is that they maximize the opportunity that's in front of them at present. What you just brought up, I think... Now, in the position I'm in where I do hire people and look at resumes and interview, 
Um, I can totally see that if I had, you know, a four-year college degree student and, and then somebody from Europe, oftentimes you want to know what they're made of, right? I can teach you what you need to know here for the most part. If you have these underlying skills and even more so if you have the passion, the drive, the resiliency to do it. And when if I just get to know you, I almost feel like coming out of a four-year university, and I'm not saying everyone, maybe I'm generalizing here, but you might almost be at a disadvantage, which is crazy to say, thinking of the, the youth of these people. I think you raise a really profound point. We often say that employers hire for skill and fire for behavior. <laughs> You know, folks want good attitude, behavior, someone who's reliable, shows up, good team worker. Um, I often say we, we have millennial age young uh, students who don't have a millennial attitude. <laughs> and uh, they are super hungry and resilient. And I think employers for many, many years have used a college degree as a proxy for what they believe they need in their workforce. But if you then ask them, what do you really need? Um, they probably wouldn't say, I need a geology major what they would tell you is they need a set of competencies, a set of attitudes, and a set of behaviors. And you're starting to see, just starting to see, employers, uh, and you know, Google is one of the leaders here, starting to look at those competencies, attitudes, and behaviors in the hiring process in recognizing that they're actually more relevant and correlated to who will be a good employee in their company versus a particular degree, which is really just a proxy that you can read, write, think critically, and may have some other skills and attributes associated with that. Now think of how in the next 30 years, 20, 30 years, hiring in this country is going to change and how that may advantage many more people when employers can really get a handle on those attitudes, behaviors, and core competencies. So, you know, you've seen hundreds, if not thousands, of these stories happening before your eyes. So I'm not going to ask you for your favorite, but can you tell us a story of one of your students that really stands out and just really makes you smile? Sure. I can uh, tell you about uh, one of our graduates. Um, he's probably now, goodness, uh, seven, seven years, maybe eight years out of the program. He happened to, uh, as a young man, have uh, made a mistake and spent about 18 months in prison. He applied to Europe as he was coming out of prison. And I remember the day afterwards, he said, Gerald, when you sent us that acceptance letter, when you sent me that acceptance letter, you don't understand what the word ex you're accepted meant to me. When you're coming out of prison, you think you will never be accepted, not into a program, but you will not be accepted back into society. And so I remember you told the story of, of what it felt like to come here, uh, having you know, come through the, the prison system real smart young man. He'd been in college, ran into some trouble there, and, and uh, had to drop out. He did a great job with us, ended up uh, getting a job at one of the leading universities in the whole country. He's been there for the past six years in the technology department. He's married, very happily married. He bought his own home, uh, has a beautiful son. You know, this is a young man who grew up in, on public assistance and at times did not have a home or a roof over his head. And I will never forget the day he said to me, Gerald, when you carry your son over the threshold of the house that you bought, he said, when you tuck your son into a bed that you know he will have forever, and when you grow up the way I did in terms of not having any of that stability, he said, my friend, I don't know if you ever know, will know how this feels, but it feels fantastic, and I'm so glad I can live the life that I have always wanted 
for my wife, myself, and my community. And he's a deep leader in the community. He was the first gentleman appointed to Europe's Board of Directors. And I tell you, I smile every time I talk to him. You know, I just got goosebumps when you made the statement about buying a bed that you'll have forever. Because I started thinking about, you know, he probably went time sleeping on a floor or not having a bed, those types of things. And it's just something that we take for granted. That's really, really powerful stuff there. And, uh, and I tell you, it happens thousands of times over a year up across the country. And, you know, by the September of this year, we will have served 10,000 young people. And they're working in places like Google, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, State Street, Bank of America, J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs, Harvard, MIT, the federal government. And what we're showing is that our talent is some of the best talent out there. And that if you just give us an opportunity to show you that, we can introduce you to a new pipeline of talent that is hungry, that's resilient, that's incredibly reliable, that's loyal, and is also very diverse and culturally competent, which one could easily argue that if you don't build a culturally competent, diverse workforce, you will not be a relevant company in the next 30 years. And so I can hear almost people out there, and you know, I don't think anyone will disagree with the, the great things you're doing, but I can hear skeptics saying, what if they have this history of stealing? Are they going to steal from me? Or what if they um, aren't really as good as you're saying? How can they get all this training in a year? Yeah, I mean, we're an interesting nonprofit organization in that our economic incentives uh, are highly aligned with doing what we say we do. So if, if you imagine, we'll generate $38 million from companies that pay us to have this pipeline of talent. I can promise you in today's society, there is no company out there that's going to be paying to have something that does not work. So the proof of year up is not what I'm saying. The proof is that 300 companies have made a decision to invest in this pipeline of talent. And the money is not coming from their foundation or their philanthropy. It's coming from line managers who have to build human capital and have recognized that our human capital can meet the needs that they have and indeed do it more cost effectively than other pipelines of talent they may have invested in in the past. So Europe's an interesting organization is that if we don't deliver what we say, we'd be out of business in less than six months. And that, you know, the proof's in the pudding for us. And, you know, the fact students are getting jobs, corporate partners are happy. They come to us consistently and say, we want more. Just was out in San Francisco yesterday, and uh, one of our partners out there said, you know, this is great. We want more. We're going to increase by five times the number of students we're going to take. They don't do that for charitable reasons. They do it for business reasons. Absolutely. And that, that really is. That's a that's a rock-solid response. I mean, it's it's I, unfortunately, there aren't that many organizations out there that are that accountable. And there definitely isn't that kind of accountability in political systems and things <laughs> like that. I mean, you can screw up all over the place. And so to, to have that direct link of accountability, uh, I think, says a lot. And we, it, we would argue very strongly that to the extent public funding can shift their incentives to the point where we're using our tax dollars, not public funding, to pay for results rather than efforts. So when I ran a software company, no one paid me to try to build software. <laughs> you know, they paid the receivable when the software worked and they got value from it. And they would hold the receivable until they got value and they, we proved we delivered the goods. Imagine in the public sector where, in many cases, you get paid to try to do something, to try to train someone, to try to move someone from poverty into a job. I would argue that the vast bulk of 
funding should be focused at least in part, if not majority, on results. In our particular sector, it's pretty easy to prove whether someone's got a job or not. You either have a W-2 or you don't. In workforce development, in youth workforce development, I think the public should be holding everyone highly accountable for results and use our tax dollars as effectively as we possibly can. You need to run for office because... <laughs> I think I see that in your future. <laughs> yeah. No, I can promise you, you can save this tape and you can play it in the next 20 years and I'm not running for public office. No, because one of the things that I wanted to ask about was, do you ever hear that people are calling this a handout, but with what you just said being held accountable to results, I mean, that gets rid of that quote-unquote dirty word of handout. Yeah, no, we're a hand up, not a handout. I don't I like believe that. in handouts for the able-bodied, able-minded. I actually don't think they need them. I think it's disrespectful in some respects. Look, the best thing we can do for a young person is to expect a great deal from them, you know, to hold them to very high standards, to accept no excuses. We've dumbed down a lot of programs and expectations because we think people either can't do it or we feel sorry for someone. Human beings don't need that. You know, our young adults want to be held to the same standard as any young adult in the country, period. Now, I would also say at the same time, they deserve, as many of us have gotten in our lives, the support from caring adults who believe in them and want them to be successful. But if you match high expectations with high support, you have a winning recipe to actually run, I'd say, many social programs that work with folks who are trying to increase and realize their potential. I totally agree with the thing about having caring people in your corner. I just imagine if I didn't have the support of family, I both monetarily and just emotionally, I can say without a doubt, I would be um, probably broken on the street. <laughs> I mean, it's just true. It just is. And so, you know, you need to provide that somehow. It's in, in you know, in the, your case, what you're saying is you had your year up. Mm -hmm. It happened to manifest itself in two loving parents who've been supportive and probably told you a million times you can grow up to do whatever you want to do. Um, <laughs> And that's wonderful. It's useful to be cognizant of that. It's also useful to be cognizant what advantages might you have been born with that you had no basis to determine upon birth, that you just got them. You know? yep. Whether in my case, I was born a white male, you know, the most overprivileged species in America. I should at least be cognizant that some of the privilege I have today was unearned. And that's, that's okay. I'm not defensive about it. I don't feel guilty about it. But what I should do is be cognizant of what was my year up, what advantages might I have had. And let's think about how we provide uh, many more folks with opportunity, not outcome. We can never guarantee a quality of outcome in this country, nor should we. We should damn well, damn well work hard to have a quality of opportunity. I don't think there's anybody out there that can refute that. And I, I know we're, uh, we're coming up on time here. I had one last question that I, I have to ask you, just given your experience, the company you've built, all that. What do you think the success of Europe in one year, taking people from you know these, these really difficult uh, situations, turning them into excellent employees, what do you think that says about our formal education system? So we have um, a formal education system, uh, uh, if you look at higher education, you've got a community college system that educates about 13 million Americans that has a 29% graduation rate over three years. You've got a four-year system that educates about 14, 15 million people that has a 56% graduation rate over six years. Now, if, if we're trying to build a knowledge-based economy, and we believe 
that post-secondary education is a critical part of building that knowledge-based economy. How can you run a country with 29% and 56% success rates across 28 million people? You can pretty easily argue that our current higher education system has to radically change in order to keep this country globally competitive. There is no way we're going to be able to educate in today's model the number of skilled workers we're going to need to meet the insatiable demand for skilled workers in this country. And so I, I think you're going to see more change in higher education in the next 25 years than you have seen in the last 300 years. And we at Year Up should be part of that. We should be leaning into that. We work with community colleges, some of the best leading community colleges like Nova, Miami-Dade, uh, Foothill College. And we should be part of helping that system and supporting that system to ultimately adapt as well as they can. Because the fact is, is Europe is not going to grow to solve the country's problems, but Europe should hold itself accountable to maximize its social impact, uh, which means we have to work with the bigger systems out there and see ourselves as a helpful part of the solution rather than myopically think this is just about growing year up, which it's not. That kind of led me into this, and maybe it's me kind of wanting to defend my four-year secondary education, but is there still something, you know, to be said about having maybe that liberal arts degree or a, a more well-rounded, less targeted education, assuming there is a higher graduation rate, obviously? I think there's a lot to be said, and uh, as someone who consumed a four-year liberal arts degree as well, I think there's a lot to be said for it. But in, it is valued, valuable, and needed. But here's what is important to think about. What percent of adults in this country over the age of 18 have a college degree, a four-year college degree, that they got between the ages of 18 and 22, which it sounds like you would be in that category. Right. Um, I'm in that category. And, and so the reality is only eight out of 100 folks in this country have a four-year degree that they got between the ages of 18 and 22. Wow. Only eight. 92 of those 100 would not say yes to those two questions. And so when you think about that, it's we often think about higher education and our own self-image. And the folks often making policy may have consumed education in the way that you and I just articulated, that four-year fixed-term residential. That's eight out of 100 people right now. The fact is, is that 50% of the people who go to college in this country work full-time. 80% of people who go to college work in some way, shape, or form. And we have to design the policies and the structures to accommodate the consumption of both payworthy and creditworthy activities at the same time. That's what gave me goosebumps right there, because the this whole podcast is about expanding your mind and getting out of whatever bubble you might be in. And, you know, that might be part of my bubble. What you said about we often think about higher education in our own self-image. I think you can replace the word higher education with almost anything, and we still think of it in our own self-image, and it's not until we get out of that and realize oftentimes we're the minority that we can make real change and look at real change. Gerald, I, I truly appreciate you being on the show. What you're doing at Year Up is incredible. As I mentioned, we didn't necessarily have time to get into all the nitty-gritty, but there is some great stuff which we will link to, especially the 60 Minutes interview where people can see exactly how you're training these employees. And I know your website is yearup.org. Is there anywhere else we can kind of lead our listeners to say, hey, if you want to check this out, if you want to help out, uh, what can they do? 
It's kind of you to ask. I appreciate it. The best place is our website, uh, yearup.org. And to folks who may want to volunteer, we have a few thousand mentors a year. We have a few thousand guest speakers a year. So if you want to guest speak, mentor, tutor, if you'd like to donate a suit for someone to wear to a professional environment, if you want to donate funding to help support a student, we absolutely work with thousands of folks across the country. We need thousands more to meet the needs of uh, our students and the needs of the growth we have ahead of us. And right from our website, you can connect to whatever city uh, you live in, that we work in, and uh, we'd certainly welcome the opportunity to work with you. Or if you're an employer and you need talent, you can come to Europe, and I promise you we got talent. I love it. I love it. Gerald, again, thank you so much for being on the show and for doing what you do at Europe. Very important, and I love the fact that you have results to show for it. We appreciate it, uh, and, and thanks again. No, thank you both so much. It's a pleasure. Uh, congrats on what you're doing. Keep up the great work, and if I can ever be assistance, just let me know. Thanks for sticking around. I hope you guys enjoyed that conversation with Gerald. If you are interested in participating with Year Up and volunteering your time, donating suits, whatever it may be, head over to yearup.org. It's a great organization. I'm, I'm sure, as you heard that, you learned. And so thanks for tuning in. Hopefully we kind of expanded a little bit more of your mind today. Make sure to sign up for our newsletter, which you can do right at our website, Uh, We send it out maybe once every two weeks or so and kind of point out some great things we've learned in the show. John sometimes pulling up great articles that we'll send your way. No spam. We don't pass it along to anybody else. It's just real stuff for the smart people you are. Again, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, head over to iTunes, leave a rating and review. If you're not on iTunes and you're on an Android device or some other type of device, head over to Stitcher and leave us a review there. That helps us as well. Thank you guys so much for all you do, for all the tweets, all the emails, all the reviews you've left. Hope you guys enjoyed this week's interview and are looking forward to next week's. 